This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. Another basic white guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. on the wall. I'm just calling it the wall. Forget the wall. Tell me about the meeting I've got set up. You know Peter Thiel? Nope. No reason you should. He just runs a two billion dollar hedge fund called Clarium Capital. Hey guys. Come on back. She offer you some waters? Oh yeah. We're cool. She's on her way. Come on in. It must be Mark. Hi. We took a look at everything and congratulations. We're gonna start you off with a $500,000 investment. Maurice is going to talk to you about some corporate restructuring. We'll file as a corporation in Delaware. Come up with a stock structure that allows for new investors. Now, let me ask you something. Who's Eduardo Saverin? This is the fictionalized account in the movie The Social Network, where Sean Parker introduces Mark Zuckerberg to legendary investor Peter Thiel. It's central to the conceit of the movie because it paints Thiel as the spark of betrayal. Recognizing that Eduardo Saverin held too much equity in the startup, Thiel devises a new corporate structure to dilute Saverin's shares and push him out of the company. Or so the story goes. What's interesting about this portrayal of Thiel as a Machiavellian villain is that sometimes truth is stranger and more accurate than fiction. So why dedicate an entire episode to Peter Thiel? Well, primarily because he's fucking with our lives working out his own shit by subjecting us to his libertarian fantasies like mice in a box. Another master of the universe type who believes he's somehow been ordained with gifts from on high, as evidenced by his disdain for all things fair. Democracy, multiculturalism, equity and inclusion, taxes, you name it. Some of it is morbid curiosity, I admit. He's hard to explain because every time you think you've got this guy nailed down, he zags. The title of the lone biography about him is Contrarian, and we'll pull from it a good deal, but even through the book's exhaustive interviews, there's something missing from Teal's profile. So I decided to pull the trigger on this episode because of Teal's influence as an individual, as well as what he represents. Both are terrifying and mystifying. And honestly, I feel like unfuckers are among a few in America who can appreciate why, and I know that sounds opaque, but I think you'll agree. And if you're not at all interested in learning about yet another fucking rich, tax-evading, libertarian asshole hell-bent on destroying democracy, I'll save you some time and get to the punchline. Teal is a sociopathic man-child who participates in fiscal and political filial cannibalism. And together we'll discover why I say... You're simply the worst A pariah and a curse And Fucking the Republic is brought to you by over-caffeinated members, W. Jeremy D., Specker, Sam C., Ryan F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof. G., Pete M., Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Nettie Hugger 1, 
Michelle H., Matthew, and the memory of Nettie McGee. Chapter 1. So who the fuck is this guy? Look, there has always been a case to be made that billionaires, simply by their very existence and their sheer lobbying power, pose a threat to democracy. But how about a proudly pro-Trump billionaire who spends his millions funding candidates who push the big lie, who invites to dinner a self-identified white nationalist and who has said on the record he doesn't believe in democracy? How about him? Shouldn't we be paying more attention to a billionaire like Peter Thiel? Yes, Mehdi, we should. Dark money is leveraged almost evenly on both sides of the political aisle. It is fucked. But only Republicans seem to raise money from billionaires who have designs on tearing down the political system and clearing a path for tax evasion and financial corruption. Such is the case with billionaire Paul Singer, the biggest vulture on Wall Street who buys sovereign debt then holds countries hostage for repayment. Or our fair lady, Rebecca Mercer, the money behind Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, and Steve Bannon. The elusive Wilkes brothers who bankrolled PragerU. The DeVos family and their twin mission of creating a rogue mercenary army and crippling public education. Charles Koch and his dead brother looking to abolish agencies like the EPA that hold them accountable for their pollution. Or Barry Side, who gave a $1.6 billion endowment to the Federalist Society to continue its work packing the courts with far-right extremists. Each of them has demonstrated a willingness and desire to wrest control of the country for social and economic reasons that fit their worldview. Almost all of them avoid revealing their grand designs in public, and most of these have been at it longer and poured way more money into buying politicians than Peter Thiel. Even though there are other billionaires who put their money into play and unabashedly support conservative ideals, Thiel has emerged as something different altogether. Peter Thiel is a self-styled intellectual who loves the spotlight even though he's a horrendous public speaker. He mostly refuses to speak on the record to the media, but he frequently accepts offers to speak at conferences or debate in public forums. According to sources in the aforementioned biography, most people utterly despise him personally, but apparently he's a fucking awesome guy to work for. These are the surface conflicts that make him hard to pin down. And the deeper you go into this dude, the more contradictory things are. Thiel was born in Frankfurt, Germany in 1968 to a very Christian family. He spent some of his early years in Cleveland. Hello, Cleveland! Hello, Cleveland! Where his father, Klaus, landed a job in engineering, specializing in oil refineries and heavy industry. A few years later, his father moved the family to apartheid South Africa, where Peter would get his formative education at an elite whites-only school. So far, this makes sense. His father would eventually switch from consulting oil companies to uranium mining in Namibia on behalf of the South African government. What a swell family. As biographer Max Chafkin writes in The Contrarian, quote, a report published at the end of apartheid by the Namibia Support Committee, a pro-independence group, described the conditions at the mine in grim terms, including an account of a contract laborer on the construction project, the project Klaus's company was helping to oversee, who said workers had not been told they were building a uranium mine and were thus unaware of the risks of radiation. The only clue had been that white employees would hand out wages from behind glass, seemingly trying to avoid contamination themselves. The report mentioned workers, quote, dying like flies in 1976, while the mine was under construction, end quote. The Teals moved back to Cleveland for a cup of coffee after the mine opened, but then landed in California, overseeing the opening of a gold mine. 
Peter read Tolkien, enjoyed Dungeons and Dragons, played chess obsessively, had few friends, and signed every yearbook with, have a good life. He proved to be an exceptional student, which earned him a spot at Stanford, where he rocked a 4.0. While he was still painfully antisocial, he joined the college Republicans, started reading Ayn Rand, and apparently told classmates that, quote, concern about apartheid was overblown, according to Chafkin's interviews with classmates. Outside of chess and developing an early affinity for white supremacy, Thiel had a devout Christian upbringing, although he appeared to be unmoved by religion until he became enamored with the teachings of René Girard, a philosopher who maintained that Christ was the ultimate scapegoat of history at the center of his teachings and that humans are driven by envy to imitate what they saw before them. According to a profile of Thiel in The Atlantic, quote, in Girard's telling, imitation generated conflict as people fought for the same things, the same jobs, schools, and material possessions, even though such trophies would fail to make them happier. Life, Thiel would eventually come to realize, could be cast as a struggle to escape the false siren of copycat cravings. To be free, you had to carve your own path. You had to be a contrarian." End quote. Under Girard's influence, Thiel would rekindle his relationship with his religion and lean hard into the conservative aspects of Christianity. To this day, he has the ability to move seamlessly between lessons from Tolkien fantasy and those found in the Bible, often quoting both in public lectures. During his time at Stanford, he started the Stanford Review, modeled closely after the Dartmouth Review, which was founded by another hard-right libertarian douche nozzle named Dinesh D'Souza. Unfuckers probably know him, and if you don't look him up, he is awful, and he's a joke. But it was his publication of a book called The Diversity Myth, which blamed women for rape and contained homophobic sentiments that earned him his first bit of notoriety. A spark of fame that would finally ignite a fire in Teal to be seen, heard, and followed. Now, after graduation, he was accepted into Stanford Law, where he flourished academically as well. Armed with this law degree, he took a job at a white shoe firm in New York, but he didn't last very long. He quickly left the law behind and became a derivatives trader, but was uninspired and unhappy in the job. So, Teal packed up, left New York, and headed back to the West Coast to start a hedge fund. Because, why not? It must have been difficult to start a hedge fund when you only have a law degree and didn't last more than a year in two jobs. Actually, Teal managed to cobble together a million dollars from friends and family to start his fund. Oh, okay. So, how did that go? Not bad, I guess. Even though this was the late 90s and nearly everyone investing in California was able to make a killing before the dot-com bubble burst, Teal outsmarted everyone and decided to invest in currencies instead. Wow, right. The contrarian. So he killed it. Well, sort of. He killed his investors because he lost so much money. But he had a little left over, so he switched from a hedge fund investor to venture capitalist. And this time, things worked out a little better. So just to recap, Peter Thiel went to Stanford undergrad, then Stanford Law, became a lawyer for less than a year before switching to derivatives trader for a few months, only to move back to California to start a hedge fund despite having no experience, failed at his first round of investments, then decided to become a venture capitalist. That's pretty much the origin story. Oh, just another made it from nothing, pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of story that libertarians love. Provided you're a fan of apartheid, have the same family support to get two advanced degrees from Ivy League schools, and the ability to leave three different professions while getting bankrolled with a million bucks. Got it. Yes, and it gets even better from here. 
As many of you might know already, Teal actually did hit the next one out of the park by investing in a little piece of technology created by a kid named Max Levkin. Levkin was a coder who programmed a way to pass information securely between Palm Pilots. Levkin called it FieldLink. Never heard of it. Me neither. But you might have heard of what it morphed into. FieldLink's security profile made it ideal for also passing payments securely, even though it was originally for the narrow purpose of Palm Pilots. But the code would morph, and the company adopted the name Confinity, with Teal at the helm. He'd seeded the company with $250,000 left over from the friends and family money built up in the hedge fund days. Never heard of Confinity either, to be honest. Perhaps, but you've probably heard of the system that it used to transfer money. PayPal. UNFTR is also sponsored by our overcaffeinated members, Kryn G, Jennifer S, G Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Brian, Awesome A, Ahsoke, Alfie and Flash, and Asshole. Chapter 2. Where did all his money come from, and can I have some? All right, back to Chapkin's profile. Quote, In its earliest days, PayPal employed no women, and there were no black employees. Years later, Levkin would boast about rejecting a candidate who'd used the word hoops instead of saying basketball, end quote. Teal wasn't the only white dude who grew up in South Africa running a payment company with a bunch of tech bros. In fact, the other one, literally right next door, was called X.com, run by a fella named Elon Musk. While this makes for fun storytelling, we'll make it quick and give you the highlights. Both men had gone to Stanford, though Musk only for a graduate degree. Musk had already cashed out of a startup netting a cool $22 million after being ousted by his investors for being an unmanageable asshole. They both landed in California with a similar idea to address payments, though Musk's idea was far more ambitious in scope. Believe it or not, the two companies knew nothing about one another until Teal's engineers found plans in the shared dumpster behind the building. The race was on. Long story short, both companies were signing people up at a furious pace and raising eye-popping sums of money. Not to downplay their accomplishments, but there was a catch to all this. They were signing up users by paying them. Their respective platforms were free. But this was the heyday pre-bubble burst where it was all build it today, figure out how to charge for it tomorrow. Musk's solution was burning cash, but growing its user base. Teal's solution struck gold by aligning with eBay as its preferred payment system. In a relatively short period of time, users went from hundreds to thousands to hundreds of thousands, and the two were on a collision course with one another, their partners, and investors, as the air began to leak from the dot-com bubble. And so, they merged, with Musk at the helm and a fresh capitalization of $100 million. And then... The dot-com failures continue to mount, especially... Throughout the remainder of the year, by fits and starts, the market continued to decline. The company announced today it's laying off 518 people or 80... New business orders dried up. Technology stocks got trounced on a day of uncertainty. As soon as one person called stop, you know, it's there was so much momentum built up, it just, just came apart. Here's where we see the first flashes of Teal as Sun Tzu. As soon as the market began to crater, he quit. He left his own company and left Musk to his own devices. And like that, he's gone. Over the next several months, X.com and PayPal would come under increasing pressure to get lean and make money. 
Up until this point, neither Musk nor Thiel had put much effort into building a revenue model. It was all about users and investors. Get the money, pay the users, go back for more. Becoming the biggest was the operative, so big that they couldn't be ignored by their investors or potential suitors. But there was a bigger problem looming that the carefree Musk had chosen to ignore. Fraud. The company was raking in users and had begun taking small fees which irked partners like eBay, but the gamble that PayPal would become too big to push around worked. So the company started charging money, cents on the dollar for transfers. It would soon become apparent that fully one-third of PayPal's revenue was coming from gaming and porn sites, a fact that bothered literally no one at the company, including the devout Christians who were given space to pray together on a daily basis. More troubling was the discovery that PayPal was being used to launder money by some pretty bad actors. Musk's desire all along had been to turn the company into a bank. Deposits, checking accounts, international transfers, and so on. His overreach was tremendous and his attention to detail was absent. Between his wild management style, inability to crack down on fraud, money pouring out and expenses creeping up, the investors and the board were getting nervous. Thiel, sensing his moment had arrived, devised a plan with key staff members still loyal to him to oust Elon Musk while he was on his honeymoon, ostensibly the first vacation he'd taken in years. He seems like a nice guy. This is the guy trying to buy the company, not to mention put you out in the street, and all you can see is, hmm, he seems like a nice guy. <laughs> he does. Well, the plan worked. Elon Musk was out. Teal was back in. Once back at the helm, Teal went on the offensive, rooting out fraud that was mostly coming from Russian hackers, tightening controls in every corner of the company, and playing investors, Wall Street, and partners against one another in the ultimate game of value chess. Long story short, he created an urgency around the value of PayPal and even got Meg Whitman at eBay, who hated Teal, by the way, to pursue the company lest Teal get too big for his britches. But Peter Teal had a different plan, to go public. Playing everyone against one another, Teal brought the IPO across the finish line, but not before making one last strategic move on the chessboard. He forced the board to part with more equity at the 11th hour, which they reluctantly awarded him through a loan to purchase more shares. And he did something so fucking crafty that even I have to give a tip of the old cap. Quote, The late Senator William Roth Jr., a Delaware Republican, pushed through a law establishing the Roth IRA in 1997 to allow, quote, hardworking middle-class Americans to stow away money tax-free for retirement. The Clinton administration didn't want to give a fat tax break to wealthy people who were likely to save anyway, so it blocked Americans making more than $110,000 per year, $160,000 for a couple, from using them and capped annual contributions back then at $2,000, end quote. So that's the lead to a ProPublica article on Peter Thiel's ingenious move. So here's how he did it. When Thiel forced the board's hand to give him the money to purchase shares in the PayPal IPO, he used a half a million in his Roth IRA to purchase more. There were three important devices that allowed him to do this. One, you cannot use a Roth IRA to purchase shares in a company you control. He didn't have control of PayPal, just a stake. Two, it had to be valued under a certain amount, which it was since this was pre-IPO. And three, you have to be a real fucking douchebag, which he is. 
Essentially, all the gains on the shares of stock from that point forward grew inside the Roth account, and Teal can extract these gains tax-free when he turns 59. He's 55. Thiel would repeat this maneuver over his career, as would many others when Congress relaxed the rules on contributions even further, which is how he was able to put so much in there in the first place. So according to ProPublica, at the end of 2019, Thiel's Roth IRA was valued at $5 billion. Holy shit balls. Back to ProPublica to close this section out. Quote, Thiel, a fan of Tolkien, by then had brought his Roth under the auspices of a family trust called the Rivendell Trust. In The Lord of the Rings, Rivendell is a secret valley populated by elves, a misty sanctuary against forces of darkness. And thanks to the Roth, Teal's fortune is far more vast than even experts in tallying the wealth of the rich believed. In 2019, Forbes put Teal's total net worth at just $2.3 billion. That was less than half of what his Roth alone was worth. End quote. Chapter 3. We're all just pawns on Peter's board. There are elements in Teal's origin story that are essential to his character. Most of the bios and wiki entries are consumed with his investment prowess, and now his political interventions. Teal would indeed go on to provide the seed funding for Facebook after cashing out from PayPal. His investments now include Elon Musk's SpaceX, yes, he has since made up with Elon Musk, Stripe, Airbnb, Asana, Spotify, Twilio, Lyft, Oculus, Credit Karma, ZocDoc, and dozens of other tech companies that have changed the world or are in the process of doing so. Despite the fact that Teal is on record routinely criticizing Silicon Valley for its lack of innovation. Today, he's a boogeyman to those on the left who see his involvement in free speech platform Rumble as evidence that even his investment strategy is moving to the far right and not just his political contributions and many wonder if they go beyond speech to real-world destruction of the political system. Take, for example, Palantir, a company that Teal was instrumental in funding and generating connections for lucrative contracts. You might remember Palantir's involvement in hunting down undocumented immigrants during the Trump years. As The Intercept wrote in 2017, quote, Palantir has never masked its ambitions, in particular the desire to sell its services to the U.S. government. The CIA itself was an early investor in the startup through InQtel, the agency's venture capital branch. But Palantir refuses to discuss or even name its government clientele, despite landing at least $1.2 billion in federal contracts since 2009." End quote. So some see this as evidence that Thiel, through proxy investment Palantir, had designs on supporting some of Trump's most evil policies. But while Thiel was certainly a vocal supporter of Trump, even snagging a primetime slot at the 2016 Republican convention, the fact is that Palantir did even better under Obama. It's also true that most of Thiel's recommendations for hires as a member of Trump's transition team weren't chosen and that Thiel eventually pulled support for Trump's re-election bid. Like I said, this guy's hard to pin down. As The Atlantic piece points out, quote, Thiel's greatest startup hits share no particular industry theme, but most reflect this appetite for radical outsiderism, end quote. Another quick piece of information to file away for later, by the way, is the fact that Palantir's IPO filings showed that the company hadn't yet turned a profit by 2020, despite years of lucrative contracts. And hold that thought.
Aside from his investments, which are a matter of public record and have won him accolades in financial circles, I find his backstory more illuminating. The outsider, the contrarian, self-made billionaire. These are compelling narratives that, matched with wealth, buy you access and a voice in the public square. But to accomplish what? To say what? In 2009, Thiel wrote, quote, I no longer believe that freedom and democracy are compatible, lamenting that the vast increase in welfare beneficiaries and the extension of the franchise to women, two constituencies that are notoriously tough for libertarians, have rendered the notion of capitalist democracy into an oxymoron, end quote. This is where Thiel gets interesting later in life. If you can judge someone by the company they keep and the things they do and say, then it creates a devastating circumstantial picture of someone who is more than an opportunistic investor. People like Thiel are characterized these days as incels when they're young, disassociated misogynists who live largely online and are incapable of relationships. Then there's the alt-right wing of the Republican Party that does things like, I don't know, storm the Capitol. We've got white Christian nationalists who are anti-immigration xenophobic survivalists who want to take away bodily autonomy and give power to the states. And, of course, we have billionaire libertarian tax evaders who support far-right candidates that will clear a path for the groups above and their patrons to avoid taxes. In the center of this Venn diagram sits Peter Thiel. The brilliant Natasha Leonard wrote a piece for The Intercept earlier this year that speaks to the formation of the new right. Here's an excerpt. Now, in our era of Trumpian reaction, we're seeing reports about a new, new right. Like the new rights that came before, it's a loose constellation of self-identifying, anti-establishment, allegedly heterodox reactionaries. The newest of the rights is similarly fueled by disaffection with liberal progress myths and united by white supremacist backlash, this time with funding largely from billionaire Peter Thiel, end quote. In our politics, it shows up in the form of donations, but also candidate selection. This is where Thiel has upped the ante compared to billionaire funders of years past. Candidates have always sought the approval and the funding of the billionaire libertarian set. But what's different about Thiel is he's literally constructing candidates in his likeness from the ground up. Take, for example, this fucking guy. A Democratic Senator Mark Kelly is running for a full six-year term in November. His opponent will be political newcomer Blake Masters of Tucson. He's a Trump-endorsed candidate who defeated four rivals in the Republican primary. Masters was backed by more than $10 million from his former boss, Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel. So, who is Peter Thiel? Then, of course, we have this professional douche nozzle running in Ohio. Peter Thiel put $15 million into a Vance Super PAC, according to Politico. That's the largest amount ever given to boost a single Senate candidate. Vance also happens to be a former employee of Thiel's. In fact, in 2020, as Vance pondered a political career, he launched his own venture capital firm with seed money provided by Peter Thiel. So he wants his very own Senate candidates. Unfuckers, these aren't just terrible humans that took Thiel's money. They're literally his former employees, and they have a fucking shot at becoming U.S. senators. And so let's actually listen in to hear from Thiel himself to see if we can discern a worldview and figure out what the fuck he's after. The interesting thing about watching interviews and lectures from him over the years, by the way, is watching him get increasingly more comfortable. 
He is a terrible public speaker, I mean awful, but he's been practicing certain lines and themes as he hones his worldview. Here's a talking point that I've heard multiple times. His way of framing consensus as a bad thing and thereby democracy as inherently dangerous. We always think of, you know, democracy as a good thing. In a democracy, the majority is more right than wrong. And if you get you know, 51% is more right than 49 and and 70% is even more right. But, you know, if you get to 99.9%, maybe that's totally right. Or maybe you're in North Korea. This is his way of attacking conformity through media censorship. And here's how he feels about public policy as it relates to climate science. You know, you see this, of course, in all the uh, genuflections to science with capital S. You know, in this household, we believe in science. That's sort of an evidence that you don't. Or, uh, or just even just the, you know, the, the assertion. You know, I always think that you know, when you have to call things science, you know they aren't. Like climate science or political science. We don't use physical science or chemical science because uh, you, know, you, don't, you don't need to push it quite that hard. Here's his philosophy truly on display using the coded nationalistic language of anti-globalism. Now, um, relating this a little bit to the theme of this conference of uh, the question of nationalism, um, it strikes me that uh, one of the ways the question of nationalism always gets misperceived is that it is is seen as uh, not so much on the side of individuals or classical liberalism or even conservatism. and yet this seems to me very wrong because uh, the, the place where uh, we have the, the worst mobs, the most homogenized forms of thinking possible are in the context of globalization. And if we think of nationalism as a corrective to the sort of, you know, homogenizing, you know, brain dead one world state that's totalitarian and where there are no, no dissent, no individualism is allowed. It is, um, it is the, the sort of all-important corrective at this point. And, and I keep thinking that the, the worst forms of this sort of um, fake consensus, fake cent- dangerous centralization, ministry of truth, are all the, uh, the globalist versions. So here's where things get a little tricky. Let's pause for a minute before we hear more from him. So we know that nationalism is a bad thing when it takes the form of mob rule and organizes against those it perceives as other, like Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia. But he does a head fake, criticizing nationalism as the only antidote to the so-called one-world state that's totalitarian. He says on multiple occasions that he prefers misinformation to a ministry of truth and makes not-so-subtle allusions to the U.S. media as such a ministry. So in his world, Nationalism is preferable to globalism, but only to the extent that it still allows for individualism. Essentially, nationalism is the best way to protect the individual against globalism, but we need to remove as much power from the state as possible to prevent it from cultivating groupthink and suppressing dissent. Strip it all away, and there's a very simple narrative thread here. Objectivism. Ultimately, Thiel sees himself as Howard Rourke, or any such protagonist in Ayn Rand fiction. And he's willing to do anything to prevent people from moving through the same systems of power that he did so that he can rise above like Luke Wilson waking up in the future in idiocracy to discover that he's the smartest person in the world. It's one of the reasons that he is so opposed to institutions of higher education despite earning two advanced degrees himself. There's probably a degree to which um, Silicon Valley um, 
the workforce in Silicon Valley is the most educated in the country, has the most you know, advanced uh, degrees, college degrees and advanced degrees, and from the elite universities, and maybe the more education you have, the more brainwashed you are. Chapter 4. Bring it home, Max. So let's rack up the inconsistencies that he likes to frame as contrarian. Two advanced degrees from Ivy League schools, but calls the education system corrupt and has a fellowship to pay entrepreneurs to drop out of college. He's a devout Christian who evades taxes and quotes Tolkien. He's a gay man who backs openly homophobic candidates like Blake Masters and wrote in his book The Diversity Myth that Stanford should seal its glory holes and that women are to blame for redefining coercion and seduction as rape. He routinely shits on California, but he lives in California. Famously, he ousted Elon Musk from PayPal when Musk was on his honeymoon. Then he became an investor in SpaceX. He believes the government is evil and their surveillance state is corrupt. But he funded surveillance company Palantir with money from the CIA. He took money from friends and family and bombed as a hedge fund only to start PayPal because he saw it as a way to bring down governments by replacing currency. As a white dude who thinks apartheid was a fine system, he sees no merit, no validity in the idea of privilege. A white dude from a family that literally made its money from engineering oil refineries uranium mines, and strip mining. The same family that supported their friendless child through not one, but two Ivy League degrees, only to watch him piss them away when he quit the legal profession, quit being a derivatives trader, and blew almost all of his friends and family's money in his hedge fund. A dude who took that remaining money and back to technology he believed could destabilize governments, earned revenue from porn and gambling, looked the other way at money laundering and global fraud, fucked his business partner, and never made a fucking penny because he worked his contacts in the investment community to take on millions that he gave to customers to sign up for his free product. Then he took that money and hid it in a tax shelter, thereby abusing a system that was designed to help low- to middle-income earners. Peter Thiel failed as a lawyer, failed as a hedge fund manager, leveraged every ounce of his white privilege to invest in something that never turned a profit. Palantir never turned a profit, but its largest customer is the government, the very thing that Peter Thiel wants to destroy. SpaceX's largest customer is also the government, which Peter Thiel wants to destroy. He backed Trump because he wanted to tear down the wall of government institutions, then abandoned Trump when he didn't get any of the appointments that he wanted. Now he's trying to take over the government by installing hand-picked senators and backing myriad other big lie candidates. He shits all over Silicon Valley for its lack of innovation, yet runs a fund that invests in Silicon Valley companies, and he himself has never innovated anything and has never made a dime on his own. He appears at conferences to talk about entrepreneurship, Christianity, libertarianism, and is even giving foreign policy speeches. He can quote philosophers and kings, probably hold his own against a grandmaster in chess, and he's made a bloody fortune rolling the dice on ideas that have the ability to hasten the creative destruction of legacy industries and society. I'm going to link a video in show notes of Cornell West and Peter Thiel engaged in dialogue. It's too long and too rich to pull snippets from in this episode, but here's my impression. 
Thiel holds his own against one of the most intelligent but also gracious polemicists in the country. He bobs and weaves his way through by mixing quotes from philosophers and leaders, but the through line of it all is Ayn Rand, which is why the only time he struggles is when West presses him on issues of humanity and society. You see, these are foreign constructs to Thiel. He truly appears to be incapable of perceiving or even feigning empathy. And that's really the story here. Peter Thiel is trying to hijack what's left of our democracy because democracy attempts to organize political and economic realism in a way that supports humanity and society. So of course Thiel doesn't get it. He's acquired the financial wherewithal to participate actively in the destruction of this democracy for the very same ruthless reasons. He has a chip missing. And that would almost be fine, I suppose, if he left well enough alone. But he won't. He's not content being Howard Rourke. He wants to be John Galt or Caesar. If ever there was a living, breathing, thinking, but not feeling reason to get money the fuck out of politics, this guy is it. Look, there are things that I obviously despise about where our country is headed, but I'm not willing to burn the barn to get to the nails. But he is. Because he thinks he's better than you, smarter than you, and more deserving of riches even though he himself has never earned a fucking dime in his entire life and wouldn't know work if it hit him in his stupid, fucking, smug face. Peter Thiel is mad at the world because he doesn't fit into it. He's a petulant child with too much money. Pete's a nihilist who wants to eat the world, but we won't let him. Here endeth the lesson. episode where we used to do show notes now we just talk through a few things reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead oh post-show musings welcome into post-show musings that's our wrap-up on peter teal our villain and our bad guy there were actually a couple people i think in the facebook group on fuckers at all that guessed that our master of the universe would indeed be Peter Thiel. So good on you. Well done. There were a number of other good candidates in there, and I'm sure we'll get to them as well. But time is of the essence. And looking at Blake Masters and looking at J.D. Vance and the other candidates that Thiel has been backing and then just really falling down this rabbit hole to understand his worldview or not, I, I felt that this was really a pressing time because the villains here, the bad guys are so bad it's almost comical. I know it's overused, but people talk about that like cartoon villain. I mean, th th this guy really has the makings of a cartoon villain. He's a sick, sick fuck. But he's accepted so widely. Like, if you get a chance and you're interested in this subject and you enjoy the episode, please do try to watch that video with Cornell West. And it's, it's so fascinating because Teal is trying to pass himself off as a human being, but he just... He just can't get there when West is pushing him on moralizing and empathy and society and building out 
public structures and infrastructure. It's almost like he he uh, he sees the words like he can he can wrap his mind around the things that he's saying. He just can't understand why anybody would fucking care about it. It's it's kind of amazing to watch. I've officially watched way too many fucking Peter Thiel diatribes and convention speeches and all that kind of shit. So I'm, I'm ready to put him on the shelf. But man, if ever there was a, a dude that needed to disappear from the public consciousness, this guy's it. It just it just fucking sucks that it, that someone like this could exist and and really, really want to destroy democracy. It's weird. It's fucked up. Anyway, sitting here with 99, saying hello to Manny from Behind the glass, wherever he is, down in Hotland. I think Manny was on the road recently giving another lecture. I believe he was in Chattanooga, which was funny because we had a Chattanooga reference in our last show. And then, boop, Manny just appeared there. So let's dream of a place. Let's let's say a place and then maybe Manny will show up there. Siberia. Siberia. Do you think they're going to have any hip-hop or podcasting lectures in Siberia? They will now. Yeah. Okay. Not too late to start. Um... Can we think of somewhere maybe warmer for him or? Fine. Um, the equator. Somewhere on the equator. No, just the equator. The equator. Yeah. Just walking that line all around the world. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You said somewhere hot. I did. So. All right. Good luck with that, Manny. <laughs> 99, what's shaking with you? Not much. I have one small note of housekeeping that Buy Me a Coffee finally added the feature where you can upgrade your membership instead of just canceling. Oh. Yeah, it's real dumb that it wasn't there before. <laughs> uh, shade to them, but they did it now, and that's great. I know a lot of people were annoyed by that. I'm assuming you could also downgrade your membership that way, not just upgrade. So if you're at a high tier and you need to switch off, if you want to go higher, it's all there now. But otherwise, oh, I also, there was a small snafu with our system where people who were ordering merch and coffee at the same time, it wasn't flowing through to the warehouse system mm -mm. and someone brought it to my attention and we've now resolved it so if that's you out there and you haven't gotten your coffee yet you might have forgotten because you were like oh i got my shirt and you know whatever but i sincerely apologize it's shipping out it should be shipped by the time you hear this if for some reason you don't get the confirmation email me right away and i will personally remedy it i'm so sorry felt terrible when i saw that because you know i don't want to be a dick who's withholding your coffee we all need our coffee yeah, so we do. so yes my apologies and uh don't worry i cracked some skulls over it i bet you did yes i did i'm sure you did <laughs> so <laughs> yep. last time that'll happen mm, i where, hope wait so. where were the skulls that needed to be cracked at the warehouse or on the uh on the technology side the warehouse side <laughs> i was being diplomatic no it's fine <laughs> what if they listen I don't think they do. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. The well, warehouse. All right. All is well them. that ends well, hopefully. But yes, people need their coffee for sure. Yeah. And uh, so coming up, I'm working on something on fuckers that's, that's going to take me, I already know it's going to take me a little bit longer than I wanted it to, but I really think it's worth the wait. So I think next week what we're going to do is sprinkle the feed. And that's all I'm going to commit to right about now because 99 hates it when I say stuff and then it takes me 7 to 12 months to deliver on it. So I'll just leave it at that. And I think that's all we got, right? I think we're good to go. Yeah. Okay, unfuckers. Thank you for everyone who has been supporting us through our trifecta razor period. Hell raising, fundraising, friend raising. 
Again, we're seeing all the numbers tick up on social media with their followings, which is so much fun. We're seeing uh, new members come through, so that number's ticking up as well. We're ever so slowly creeping towards our goal of hitting 420. Like I said last time, I don't think we're going to hit it this year, but you never know. Fuckers might be feeling generous coming into the holiday season. Maybe they'll be spirited and uplifted by the results of the midterms that are getting really dicey, by the way. It's just so funny watching the polling go up and down and up and down. And what's going to happen with oil prices? Is inflation ever going to sit back down? Are they Jamie Diamond says we're going into a recession in the next seven to nine months. So got to listen to him. I got to tell you, I've se- I, I think that's almost a universal feeling at this point. Which is isn't again, it a self fulfilling prophecy though? Pretty much, pretty much. It's so it's so strange to still have. I mean, we just added another like two hundred eighty thousand jobs, not the most, but we're not going backwards, right? Yeah, except I mean, the layoffs they have to factor that in. I just saw uh, what's that? What? Well, I think that's factored into the number. I think is it's it? a net gain of two hundred eighty thousand jobs, but the softness was there because of the amount of layoffs that are happening, especially in the tech sector and, and uh, finance is starting to see them as well. I just saw who was it? What's going to be interesting while you're looking that up is the onshoring, or I guess the reshoring movement to bring some manufacturing back. Like I know there's a massive plant that's going to be at, I'm adding an extraordinary number of jobs to the Rochester area, upstate New York. And that is as a result of two things. One is uh, security concerns over manufacturing chips abroad, but also the failure of the supply chain during the pandemic. There's a lot of companies that are really taking that to heart because they they saw that it, it wasn't just a momentary collapse. It's something that has really struggled to restart when you're talking about core technologies and you're talking about raw materials. So we might see... Uh, see what? What are we going to see, man? What? Tell us. What? What are we going to see? What the fuck? I'm just kidding. Something happened with the recording, and we're going to end it there. But we'll catch you on show notes, and I'm sure he'll talk about whatever he was going to talk about for like an hour. So until then, unfuckers, peace.